0: I'll be reading from the book of Philippians, starting in chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel, Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: So my daughter and I are walking to school a couple of mornings ago, and she looks up at me and begins speaking in a concerned voice, Daddy, I'm worried. And you never want to hear that you know, from an eight-year-old, from, a, from your little girl, and I don't know what's particularly worrying her, but her mom has been in Ukraine for a week, week and a half. Maybe she's worried about that. Maybe one of the cats treated her with disdain again. I don't know. That happens. You never really know what's coming when you hear that. It could be anything from an existential question about the nature of God's existence to not having enough glitter for the next art project. You just never know. So when she looks at me, she says, Daddy, I'm worried. I don't know what's coming, but she continues, Halloween is coming in just a couple of days. Like, okay, I know where this is going. Anna doesn't like skeletons. They scare her. And in October, there's skeletons everywhere. And she doesn't know what to do with that weird feeling of like, people's bones are supposed to be on the inside, kind of, that she gets. So I'm like, okay, we're going to have our yearly talk about how it's, you know, it's not a big deal and just, you'll be okay. But she continues, Daddy, I'm worried Halloween is in just a couple of days. And you haven't thought at all about what you're going to dress up as. (laughs) She's not wrong. Ever since Jenna forbade me from being a Jedi every year for Halloween, I really haven't given it that much thought. She, on the other hand, can think of nothing else from July on. Every year, we can, we can usually guess ahead of time what she's going to want to be because every year there's a, different, there's a different story, there's a different something that really kind of grabs her. You know, the year that she watched Wally a hundred times, she wanted to dress up as Wally. The year that she discovered Pokemon and started watching all the cartoons, she wanted to go as a Pokemon. This year, she discovered Harry Potter, so she wants to be Hermione. I told her she's Hufflepuff, Hermione's Gryffindor, so it's not going to work, but she's set on it. She's going to go as Hermione this year. And what what gets me every year, you know, as we sort of play this game of what is Anna going to want to be for Halloween this year, even yesterday, she said, well, I haven't completely decided. She's got other ideas. Every year, we're like, what's the story that grabs her? What's the, the book or the movie or, or the cartoon that she's really gotten into this year? Because you can almost guarantee whatever story has gotten her really excited, has really captured her imagination and captured her attention, she is going to want to be like somebody in that story. Which is fun to watch when it's Halloween and it happens once a year. It's a little less fun to watch and it's coming when she becomes a teenager, it's a little less fun to watch when it's different friends that she's trying to be like every couple of months. It's less fun to watch when it's yourself you're seeing in the mirror, realizing you're trying to be a different person every three or four months, not happy with whoever you are right now. There's maybe, maybe if I'm more like this person, or maybe if I'm more like that person, or maybe if I'm more like they are. See, Halloween is one thing, but I think we could admit most of us, we, we spend the majority of our lives kind of looking at the people around us and saying, I wish I could be more like that, I wish I could be more like that, I wish I could be more like that, which is great if they're drawing us towards Christ. Not so great if they're not. This passage that we're looking at this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, is kind of an odd turn. It's a left-hand turn for Paul. I don't know if you noticed that. You know, if you've been around the last couple of weeks, we've been reading through Philippians. We've gone from the heights of the, the poetry of Philippians to have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, and all of that poetry. We've had the high uh, challenge to live lives worthy of the gospel, to which we've been called. We've been exhorted by Paul to work out the implications of the gospel message in our own lives. He has soared from the heights of all of this just really great writing. And then he kind of says, oh, and by the way, I was thinking of sending Timothy to visit. And it's a, a, it's a bit of a left turn. You're like, well, wait, what? I was thinking of sending Timothy to visit. And, and by the way, I'm sending Epaphroditus as well. Why stop In the midst of of all of this glorious prose, which he's going to pick back up on in just a few verses, why stop all of that to include a travel itinerary? These verses would be easier probably just to to skip over and go right ahead to chapter three, except they're here, and uh, Paul included them for a reason, God included them for a reason, and we're going to preach them for a reason, not just because they're here, but because, I think... Paul understands this fundamental idea that I can see at work in my daughter when she dresses up for Halloween, or in myself when I look in the mirror. We're all trying to become like someone else or something else. But you can't become what you can't imagine. You get that? You can't become. What you can't imagine. You can't become what you can't see yourself as. And so as Paul has been going since uh, chapter 1, verse 27, with all of this really challenging stuff, saying, You need to do this, you need to be like this, you need to have this mind, you need to have this perspective, this attitude. He's been going on and on and on with this really challenging stuff. And he pauses a second to say, maybe even thinking to himself, well, gosh, who who do they know that I know that they know that's like that already that they could look at? And he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to send Timothy and also Epaphroditus. Because when we're, when we're trying to become something, when we're trying to change, when we're trying to adapt ourselves, when we're trying to become something new to grow in some sort of way, we can't become what we can't imagine. And our imagination has to be fueled by pictures, by, by stories, by compelling testimony, by being able to concretely see in front of us the life of someone who models what we want to be, who has the kind of relationships we want to have. So as Paul is saying, there's all these great things that that I'm calling you to that Jesus is calling to you. He's pausing for a moment. He's letting us take our breaths for a moment and just say, you know what? There's a couple of people that you know that that are actually already doing this. Let me tell you about them. Timothy, the guy who just exemplifies the mind of Christ, the mind of Jesus. Remember that mind I told you to have, Paul's thinking, the, the one have this mind in you, which is also in Jesus. Like You could look at Timothy and see that in action. Or Epaphroditus, the guy who has, who really exemplifies, he lives out the life of Jesus, to put others' interests first, to be willing to go to the point of self-sacrifice. If you want to know what that looks like, take a look at Epaphroditus. So we're going to take a few minutes here looking at this travel itinerary. Of course, we're not looking at it just to get the details of who went where and when and under what circumstances and with what expectations. Uh, We're looking at these two guys because we want to kind of surface for ourselves the same things that Paul sees in them and that the Philippian church sees in these two guys and hold them up as not so much a model to be emulated as fuel for our imaginations. So let's begin with Timothy, the mind of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean from uh, beginning in verse 19. Timothy, the mind of Jesus, the mind of Christ. Paul writes in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, uh, for I have no one like him, no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. There's a big debate about who he means when he says they all seek their own interests. Probably it's going back to chapter one. I don't know if you recall that uh, Paul was saying in chapter one, like, hey, there are some people in our community who are preaching Jesus and they're doing it just to spite me. Paul says Paul's in prison for preaching Jesus, and these guys are out, and they're still preaching, and for some reason they haven't been thrown in prison, so they're like, I'm doing this, Paul, and you're not, and blah, blah, blah. And Paul's like, look, it doesn't matter as long as Jesus is being preached. That's all that really matters. That's all I care about. But he kind of lets his feelings out here a little bit. In verse 21, these guys, those guys that I was telling you about earlier, they all seek their own interests. They're using their preaching as a way of feeling better than someone else. They're just excited to be up on a stage, elevated above everyone else. They're they're just happy that when they talk, people listen. No, they're just paying attention to their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. The implication, of course, is that Timothy is different. Timothy's different than those guys, Uh, those guys who are looking out for their own interests. Timothy is not. He's looking out for others interests and primarily the interests of jesus and that should sound a little familiar you remember a couple of verses up in verse 4 paul's commanding the church be like jesus let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interests of others have this mind in you which was also in jesus and by the way parenthetically is also in timothy Says, look, you want to know what the mind of Jesus looks like in action, in your context, in your place, where you live, with your challenges and your struggles, and the people you live with. It's like, look at, look at Timothy. See, because they know Timothy. Verse uh, twenty-two says, you know Timothy's worth. You know his proven worth. You know how as a son with a with a like a son with a father he served me in the gospel Paul's like Timothy's so dedicated to this it's like a father you know teaching the trade to a son you know Timothy's proven worth they know this guy they've seen it in action they've seen Timothy in action they've seen him come through the crucible of ministry of suffering of challenge of despair. They've seen him come through it with the mind of Christ intact. And Paul's saying, look, I know it's hard to take some of these things that I'm writing about shining like lights in the world. It's pretty abstract. But if you want to make that concrete, just look at Timothy. I think this is true of or something that we can do too of of all of the commands that, that Paul gives us. You know, some of them are easy. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling. Do we need to explain that? No. That's easy. The problem is I don't want to not grumble. I like to grumble. Grumbling is fun for me. Do all things without grumbling. The negative commands are easy, right? Don't do this. It's the, the positive commands that are, are more difficult. They're, they're more abstract. Have this mind in you, which was also in Jesus. Okay. I don't know what that looks like, but I'll try. Think about this in terms of, for example, hospitality. Right, hospitality, we're supposed to be hospitable. We know that. Let's say I, you know, I felt convicted that I am just not as hospitable as I should be, and so I want to learn how to be more hospitable. So I'm going to pull up my Bible software, and I'm going to do a word search for hospitality. Four verses. Okay. That was helpful. Then I'm going to look at the word hospitality in Greek to figure out what it, what it was in another language, because... You know, in another language, it's more impactful. Philozenia, in case you were wondering. I'll start looking up stories about when strangers were welcomed in the Bible, or uh, things about compassion, or caring for the stranger. I mean, Philozenia means love for the stranger, so that's helpful. Uh, maybe I'll do a, 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 like an etymological exploration of the word hospitality itself. You know, it's very similar to hospital. It's a place of refuge and respite. Well, that's all good. Now I'm hospitable. Right? Done. Did it. I know it. No. I need to make lists now. Things I'm going to start doing. Things I'm not going to start doing. I'm going to stop doing. That's what I meant. Things I will do, things I won't do. Uh, I'm going to find some books on hospitality and read these books. What do other people say about hospitality? Maybe listen to some podcasts, read a blog post or two. Go talk to other people and say, what does hospitality mean to you? I could do all of that. Or I could just watch my wife in action and watch how every person in her orbit is welcomed with love into an environment, our home, that she has obsessively engineered to be as welcoming as possible. I think a lot of us get confused, myself primarily, we get confused and mistake knowledge for action If I know more, then I'm just going to, I guess, be better. And there's nothing wrong with knowing. There's nothing wrong with knowing the Greek word for hospitality. I firmly believe this. Nothing wrong with knowing that. But if it stops there, what's the point? The point is my imagination is not that good. I can do all of that study and still have no idea how I'm actually supposed to put it in practice. I guess it means I should be nicer. That's what I always come up with. Every command I read, I'm like, I think that means I'm supposed to be nicer. But then I can look at my wife and see her in action so and that, say, oh, that's what hospitality looks like. And once you see something in action, once you see it in someone else, it becomes so much easier to imagine what that might look like in your own life. Some of you do this in other realms of life. Some of you are instrumentalists, vocalists. Right, you know you want to sound better, play better. One of the things that you do is listen to, watch people who can do what you want to do, but can do it better than you. So you listen to better vocalists, you listen to better instrumentalists, better drummers, better guitar players. Right, I know in our culture world, we're, we're all about authenticity, and sincerity and sort of putting ourselves out there like like we're just naturally putting out what's inside of us with no work or no anything. But if I were to do that on any instrument on stage, you would not enjoy it. I need to grow a little bit more in that area or any of these areas. And if I'm going to, it begins in large part by mimicry, by copying other people who are better. We learn to speak that way we learn to write that way we learn to run that way we learn to sing that way we learn to play that way we learn to be parents to be friends to be siblings to be sons and daughters we learn everything we do in life by following someone else mimicking and imitating someone else i know many of us may think that 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 mimicking copying that's that's uh, the best way to, to not be you. But really, all of that, that mimicry, that, that following an example, that's the scaffolding that actually you know, supports who we are and who we're developing and who we're becoming. So if, when Paul is telling the, the church in Philippi, like, hey, uh, there's some hard stuff here that I want you to, to do, to, to embody, to become. There's, it's, it's hard to think like Jesus. So let me make it a little more concrete for you. Look at Timothy. You know him. You've seen him in action. If you want to do this, what I'm commanding you to do, check out this guy. He's done it. Now, maybe he's only a step ahead of us or two steps ahead of us, but he's worth looking up to. See, the stories, the characters, the people around us give fuel to our imaginations. Once we see them in action... Once we can imagine what it might look like for us to do that, we can start taking the steps to actually become that, to do that ourselves. You can't become what you can't imagine. So of course the question that comes to mind is, what's fueling your imagination? What's fueling Your picture of who God is calling you to be. For the church at Philippi, Paul's saying, Look at Timothy. You want to see Jesus's attitude of radical self donation in practice? Look at Timothy. Let him be the fuel for your imagination of how that might look in your life. Well, what about us? Who's fueling? Our imagination, what story, what picture, what person, what friend, what mentor is one or two or three steps ahead of you showing you what it could look like to live the mind of Jesus in your house, with your boss, with your kids, in your cubicle farm or in your school or on your team. Who's showing you what the mind of Christ would look like there where you are? It's a question worth asking ourselves. Because if we don't have a picture in front of us, we won't be able to imagine ourselves doing it. And in turn, be the imagination fuel for people behind us. Timothy lived out the mind of Christ so loudly that Paul could say, okay, if you wanna know what this looks like, just remember Timothy? But Timothy's not the only guy he mentions. He also talks about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, uh, who, if, if Timothy really models for us the mind of Christ, putting others' interests before his own, as Jesus did, then Epaphroditus models for us the life of Christ, being willing to sacrifice himself, to give even his whole life for the work of the gospel. Timothy models for us Jesus' attitude of radical self-donation, and Epaphroditus models for us Jesus' life of radical self-sacrifice. Take a look in verse 25. Let me show you what I mean. Paul writes, I've thought it necessary to send you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, right away there's some differences between epaphroditus and timothy there's there's no familial relationship in the in the terms of like a son and a father this is the only letter epaphroditus shows up in he's not that well known uh, to paul but he's close enough and allied to aligned with him in the work of the ministry that paul says i mean he, he's a brother he's part of this family that we call the church he's a brother he's a, a co-worker a co-laborer a fellow worker in the gospel he's a fellow soldier fighting alongside of Paul, and he's a messenger from Philippi and a minister to Paul from the church at Philippi, and he's sending Epaphroditus back because he's been longing for you all, for the Philippian church, and he's been distressed because they heard that he was ill. So here's what we think was probably happening. Again, this is the only place where Epaphroditus shows up, so a lot of this is supposition, but it seems to make sense. Church in Philippi had a reputation for taking care of Paul. Uh, More than once, they'd taken up an offering and sent it to support his ministry. Uh, They were, in a sense, a lot like faith here as as we raise funds and send them other places, you know, to places that we ourselves couldn't go. Uh, And they heard that Paul was in prison, so they took up a collection. Now there, if you stay on land and go kind of up the coast of the Adriatic and back down around the boot of Italy, I mean, it's a 1,400-mile journey so it's it it takes months to get any supplies or material or anything from here over to there so you would kind of think well why why bother he might be out of prison by the time any of the the funds get there but in this particular time and place uh, prisoners were not cared for by the state they had to rely on their families to care for them their communities right so if paul wants food or clothing or bedding if he wants pen and paper or writing utensil whatever it was then and and papyrus or whatever to write on like somebody has to provide them and there's a community around paul we know that later he he says of course timothy's there but he also says you know all the brothers that are here greet you and there's a community there that can take care of him uh, that can probably provide for his necessities but still the church of philippi said okay we know you're being taken care of there but we're still going to be part of this We want to be part of taking care of you. That's how much we love you. And so they take up a collection They say, who's going to go? And Epaphroditus raises his hand. And so he and a few others take off. Now, they may have caught a boat over the Adriatic and shaved 600 miles off their trip, in which case it would have only taken a month and a half or maybe two months. But still, he takes the money. Somewhere along the journey, Epaphroditus got sick. We don't know when. There's no details. We don't know what kind of illness. All we know is that he was sick and near death, but refused to stop. It's like, no, I have things that the apostle needs. I'm not going to stop and wait and rest and get better. He needs these things. He's the one in prison, I'm the one free, I'm going. And so he pushed on even at the expense of his own health to get this gift to Paul. Somewhere along the way, some part of the company that was with Epaphroditus went back to Philippi and shared the news that, I mean, the gift's on its way, but Epaphroditus is about to keel over, and he won't stop. Pray for him. Now, Epaphroditus knows that they know that he's sick, but he also knows that they don't know that he's gotten better. Do you follow? So he's concerned. He's distressed. He's anxious for their sake. I want them to know that I'm Okay, and so Paul says, look, I'm I'm sending Epaphroditus back, probably with this letter. We're fairly confident Epaphroditus was carrying the letter to the Philippians. It's the first known case of the use of email. (laughs) More or less the same reaction I got first hour. (laughs) So he sends this letter back with Epaphroditus as a way of saying, look, he's fine. Also, thank you for the gift. Also, guys like this... Deserve something. If you look at uh, verse 28, he says, I'm eager to send him that you, that you would rejoice in seeing at him. And, and Paul even says that he himself may be less anxious about how the church is feeling. So receive him with joy and honor, honor such men because he nearly died for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He nearly died for the work of Of Christ. What a description of someone's life. He was willing to give everything for the work of Christ. Stories like that capture our imagination, right? We think of uh, the people who go into remote jungle villages at the risk of their own lives to share the gospel with someone, to tell them about Jesus. There are certain people that are coming to your mind even as I say that. Epaphroditus risked his life to basically do what Wells Fargo does, move money from one place to another. And Paul says, this guy is my brother and my coworker and my comrade in arms because he was willing to give everything so that the work of Jesus could move forward. Even though he was, he was moving material, he was moving supplies, he was bringing funds from one place to another. And Paul says that, even that is so critical to what we're doing here. It's so critical to what God has called us to do that, that he, he, has, he has given everything, almost everything. So the work of Christ could move forward. And really the implication here is that Epaphroditus was pretty close to giving everything. Paul seems to imply that, that this was a miraculous recovery. Uh, that Epaphroditus was on his way to death until God did something to heal him. Again, we don't know what he had or, or what exactly happened. But we have a guy who, has, who is living out, exemplifying the life Christ and as Paul is sending him back to Philippi along with this letter he's saying I want you to know what what was going on here that that you didn't know about He, he he nearly gave everything so that he could be your messenger and so that he could minister to me Paul says guys like that people who give who are willing to give everything for the work of Christ they deserve to be received with joy and honored Honored, elevated, put on a pedestal, put on display, held up as an example to be emulated. Held up as someone to be copied. Held up even more as someone to fuel our imaginations. What if God called me to do that? Could I do it? I I don't know, Paul, I don't know what it looks like in my life right now, here, 21st century Indianapolis, my everyday work. I don't know what it looks like exactly to live the life of Jesus. But I can look around this room and I can see people in here who are a step or two ahead of me and show me what that might look like in my life. I can see the life of Jesus in your life and in your life, in your life and in your life. And that gives me some ideas. My imagination is not that great. I have a hard time taking the abstract stuff and making it concrete, but when I look at all of you and I look at some of you in particular, start to realize, well, maybe I could do that or that or that. You know, you can't become what you can't imagine. So we need someone around us, people around us, stories and examples and characters and, and people in our lives who, who show us a version of what we could become, who fuel our imagination, start getting a moving like, oh, I, I could be maybe like that, maybe like that. So, you know, again, the same question comes to mind, who's fueling your imagination? What person, what story, what example, what, what testimony of radical self-sacrifice is fueling your imagination? And I think that's the central question that we ask ourselves as we kind of bring this home and try to figure out how to take this abstract idea and make it concrete. Who's fueling our imaginations? A couple of weeks ago on a Saturday, I got a text message from my dad. He said, hey, I thought you would want to know, uh, Merritt Van Rukel passed away on Wednesday and his funeral's tomorrow. Now, I'm assuming none of you have heard of Merritt Van Ruckel. Uh, he was 82 years old uh, when he died um, Been married to his wife, Janice, for 62 years. And 30 years ago when I was eight and he was in his, I guess, early 50s, he and I sat together in a little side room off of a, an Awana classroom because I'd raised my hand and said, I wanted to know more about following Jesus. So me and my friend Kyle are sitting across the table from Merit, and he starts telling us about Jesus. He says, you know, Jesus is God himself, God who became man and, and came to earth, and he lived a perfect life, and he died a perfect death, because we haven't, and we can't, and we can't have a relationship with God without Jesus. You know, and he explained it in an eight-year-old way that I would understand if it, all we have to do is... The only thing there is to do is pray and say, God, thank you for this gift. I want to be, I want to, I want to have a relationship with you because of Jesus. And right there, I, I prayed to follow Jesus for the first time with Merritt Van Rukel. Ten years later, I was standing in front of the church and saying, I think God is calling me into ministry. My life had been profoundly impacted by my youth pastor. I said, I think God is calling me to do something similar to work in the lives of teenagers. And you know, I got up and I told the, the whole church, you know, a room like this, um, well, narrower and deeper and everybody sitting in the back, but a room like this, it was a Baptist church. And I come down and Merritt comes ambling on up to me. He never moved quickly, but he was always smiling, soft voice and calloused hands, like you'd expect out of a, a Midwestern farmer. He grabbed my hand. And he said, Joey, I'm proud of you. He said, I remember praying with you when you were eight. I've been praying for you every day since that day. And I'm going to keep praying for you every day as you figure out what God wants you to do with your life. That was 20 years ago. Every time I would go back to that church, I'd see Merritt. I'd see Don Vanderpaul. I'd see Brad Van Rukel. I'd see other youth workers that I'd had who had poured into me. And You know, I'd make the rounds, and Merritt would always grab my hand and say, I'm proud of you, and I'm praying for you. There are a lot of big-picture concepts in Scripture that I have a hard time wrestling down into the concrete. Faithfulness is one of them. But when I look around me at guys like Merritt Van Rukel, it starts to occur to me that maybe faithfulness is possible. Maybe faithfulness is possible for me. If Merritt can do it, maybe I can do it. Maybe I can be faithful to the same church for 60 years, faithful to the same wife. 60 years, faithful to his kids, his family, his work, uh, for decades. It's hard to take these big ideas and start to think about them, like, okay, in the concrete. But then I look around and I see, I see him and I see some of you. I think maybe it is possible. To do what Paul's commanding the church to do, have this mind in you, which was also in Jesus, and was also in Timothy, and was also in Epaphroditus, and was also in Merit, and was also in, and I know you're thinking of people. People who are not, like, don't get me wrong, we are not supposed to look at these guys and then say, okay, I need to be exactly like that and start making lists. Be like Merit. Be like Timothy, be like Epaphroditus, that's not the point. The point is, if they could do it, so could you. And when you watch them do it, you get an idea of maybe how you could too. And as you watch them sing, you find your own voice. And as you watch them play, you find your own rhythm. And as you watch them live, you find your own life and your own mind in Christ. The mind of Christ, the life of Christ that he calls us to have. You guys know as well as I do, you can't become what you can't imagine. So who's fueling your imagination? Are you letting yourself be, not just letting yourself, are you actively working to be close enough to other people who are ahead of you that that you have some, some fuel for your imagination? Who's showing you what it looks like to be Jesus where you live? become what you can't imagine. So like Paul and the church at Philippi, let's look around the room from time to time. We might see our own futures in one another. Pray with me. Father, you have given us an incredible gift, of course, first and foremost in Jesus who gave himself for us. But his death was not simply transactional, just a payment. It was also an example. His life is an example. You've given us, of course, Lord, this ultimate picture of what the mind and the life look like, the mind and the life of Jesus look like in him, we see the mind of God, the life of God at work in his radical self-donation and self-sacrifice. But Father, I confess, and I think those here with me confess as well, that it is so hard sometimes to see what that might look like in our own lives. So this morning, we just pause to thank you for the gift you've given to us, the gift of one another draw us closer together Lord as a church, as community as community groups, bind us closer to one another that we may see each other at our best and at our worst in suffering and in joy and see in one another how the mind and the life of Jesus can be lived out at 91st in College in 2019 we thank you for the grace that is
0: the person sitting next to us Jesus' name.